Welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. This is Leah Kaufman. And I'm John Murphy. In this podcast, you'll meet Dr. Euron Vodovitz, an Associate Professor of Surgery and Immunology at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine. Among his many research interests, Dr. Vodovitz studies inflammation. As we'll hear, some inflammation is essential to the healing process, but too much can be deadly. Dr. Vodovots is using mathematical models and so-called simulated clinical trials to unravel the virtues and vagaries of inflammatory processes. Let's hear Leah's interview with Dr. Vodovots now. We're joined today by Dr. Joram Vodovots. He's with the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine, and he runs a center that's part of McGowan that he'll tell us a bit about later. Welcome. Thank you. Um, I understand that you had been hoped to be joined today by a collaborator of yours. Do you want to tell us his name and a little bit about him? Uh, Sure. Uh, Gilles Clermont, he's an intensivist. He's the medical director for our center, the Center for Inflammation and Regenerative uh, Modeling. He uh, is the person who actually helped this uh, whole enterprise coalesce originally because uh, as an intensivist and someone who deals with uh, intensive care unit patients all the time. I uh, was highly frustrated by the the failure of many therapies, and uh, he uh, sent around calls in an ad hoc fashion to people that might be interested in getting involved in in mathematical modeling uh, uh, as a as a tool uh, that we'll discuss later for making much more accurate predictions of the outcomes uh, in in uh, with these patients. And uh, uh, he's the first author on uh, our our. Uh, what I think is a landmark paper on the use of these mathematical models to carry out simulated clinical trials. I know we'll talk a lot more about that in a bit. Dr. Votovotes, tell us about the problem that you're working to solve. Okay, so the what we're addressing is the complex interactions among uh, components of the acute inflammatory response or sometimes the more chronic inflammatory response and organ damage or dysfunction and how that plays out in numerous disease states. We've spent the majority of our time looking at uh, very acute inflammation, very massive processes, which are what occur in the setting of sepsis, which is the setting of uh, infection that has uh, systemic uh, overflow that can lead to uh, basically the stay in the intensive care unit and potentially death, and also the similar types of responses that occur following trauma. Uh, for example, accidental trauma or what happens, obviously, in the setting of casualty care in the current, you know, war situations, etc. Okay. So inflammation um, has a, you know, a bad rap. That's right. But obviously you've already implicated it for our listeners in terms of sepsis. Um, But it seems like usually our body does something because at some level it's good for us. Inflammation probably is one of those things. Can some inflammation be good? Yeah, so I think, I think the way that, that uh, people should think of inflammation is that it's an absolutely necessary part of the communication framework that, uh, that your body has. It's the way that your body tells other parts of itself that there has been some disruption of the normal operating uh, parameters of the body, if you will. We can call that homeostasis. So... If you want there to be a, a strong and solid response, I mean, one analogy I make to people is, you know, if you have a fire at your home and you dial nine one one, do you want there to be a kind of lackadaisical response, or would you like firefighters to show up at your house really fast? If you're being robbed, do you want to call nine one one and have the police show up tomorrow? No, you want it to happen right away, and you want it to be a vigorous response that'll deal with the problem you've got and fix it. So inflammation is that. It's mm-hmm. it's the it's the uh, response of the body to whether it's an invasion from the outside in case of infection or damage to your own tissues that comes, say, from trauma or from some longer-term process, maybe cancer, uh, maybe some sort of cardiovascular dysfunction, etc. Now, the problem is that to some degree, our current lifestyle and our, um, and our medical care has actually created certain disease states. So what it could be argued that evolution never really meant for us to survive being hit by a truck uh, for two, three weeks later. We can do that because we have uh, wonderful new medical technology that can keep us uh, alive past one of these situations that can allow us to survive. So the problem then is that, that we've been put into a situation outside of our operating parameters. 
And now we are doing things that make sense or appear logical to do to these patients in these situations, but that may in fact not be the best uh, and most optimal way to interface with this, all these undergoing processes of, of inflammation, et cetera, that are going on. So, so then we, we, that's kind of where this concept of inflammation is bad came along because you have this event going on and then you also have this inflammation going on and, and you can definitely demonstrate that that inflammation, past a certain point, inflammation is making things worse. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if, if it's at the, just at the, say, incipient stages of the septic response, if you make somebody very anti-inflamed, you know, you suppress that person's inflammation, you actually can make the outcome worse because if there's an infectious agent, for example, that agent can now have an advantage over your body. So the, pro the problem that people have is that, that inflammation is, is one of these processes, like almost every process in your body that has a very uh, different uh, manifestations depending on the time period that's elapsed from the time that whatever it was that hit you happened. So whether it was an infection or if it was a trauma or whatever, uh, th there, there are time-dependent phenomena that, that, that occur. Now we tend to look at discrete time points or, dis or associate them with discrete events and say you are now in this phase or that phase, but the reality of it is you are in a continuous changing situation. And the, as humans, we like to think that we would like to make a single drug or a single therapy that will hit one single mediator or one single process and somehow correct all of it. When the fact is that at any one time or another, uh, you might find yourself uh, in the same process, if you will, on the top of a mountain or at the bottom of a valley and it's the same process. And mm -hmm. it's very difficult to tell people that you should come up with a logical therapy that somehow fixes both of those problems, but yet they're part of the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, even if you look at some of the definitions of how sepsis is defined, uh, you'll find a ser series of opposites. Not enough white blood cells and too many blo white blood cells count as part of that definition. High or low blood pressure count as. So, so basically, it's, it's, you, know, you can just, when you start thinking about it, you realize that it, it can't be just... Uh, a very simple, straightforward, linear sort of definition. So what we're trying to do is, uh, is to say, look, um, many biological processes are like these, and people have spent time to develop techniques of simulation and, and mathematical modeling that can take, to get, take all these factors, put them together into, in, into a model that describes the mechanism of, that is involved. So understanding some of the biology, of which there's a lot of understanding, actually, uh, writing it down in the language of either mathematics or rules that you can put out into, into computer simulations, where many, many of these uh, processes will be going on at the same time and interacting with each other, and you can't know in advance what the outcome will be, but if you run these simulations, you can find out what the outcome will be, and you can make uh, very rational decisions about how would you intervene to make this process go towards a beneficial endpoint. So that's basically the, the, the gist of the rationale for what it is that we're doing. I'm trying to imagine the many variables that must be involved in modeling inflammation um, because of the many variables that are involved in human physiology, for one, but also the many variables that are involved in humankind. Um, tell me a little bit about your, your modeling system and how that works. Right. So, so as I like to tell people, we have the same basic conceptual framework underlying a series of different models, some that are very simple that we use to explain the large picture, and some that are very detailed and large, which we actually use for very detailed quantitative predictions. But all of them have, at their core, the, the, the following sort of concept. And it's difficult to do this verbally versus graphically, but I think I can try to describe it. So you imagine that you have some sort of an inciting event, an initiating event. That event sets in motion two, two mutually regulating pa uh, paths, if you will. One of them is, a, nominally speaking, a pro-inflammatory path, and one of them is an anti-inflammatory path. The pro and the anti-inflammatory path regulate each other as well. Now, the pro-inflammatory path keeps going to damage, uh, to make tissue damaged, so that you can see it under the microscope, you can see cells that are damaged, or dysfunctional, where the cells are, they look okay, they look just like cells that have had nothing uh, wrong with them, except that internally, or as a tissue, they don't function correctly, so their, their end function isn't right. Uh, but they're maybe, they're alive, 
and they're theoretically rescuable, but they're not working correctly. Now, those damaged or dysfunctional cells are producing um, certain molecules that are now known as alarm or danger signals, which are, are, are parts of a cell or, or proteins in a cell that, that by day have a normal housekeeping function, but in settings of stress are released and are that first line of, of alarm that something's gone wrong and that you need to fix it. So th the way that works is those alarm danger signals uh, create more inflammation. So they, they, there's a positive feedback loop that, that drives inflammation. So you've had your initiating event, you've made some inflammatory, uh, you've elaborated some inflammatory stimuli which then cause tissue damage or dysfunction. The tissue damage or dysfunction makes more inflammation. Now you can stay in this loop and, and in fact for a while it'll, you can make all traces or you can have all traces of the original initiating stimulus disappear but yet you're still stuck in now in your own self you know self fulfilling prophecy or mm -hmm. vicious circle now the anti-inflammatory in the arm in the meantime isn't sitting there quietly its job is to fix the damage so many of the same players that are nominally anti-inflammatory are also pro-healing and, and that's where we come into this idea of healing and regeneration now, when, if you vi and, and, and so, of course, what that's doing is it's having a, a negative feedback uh, effect. So you can imagine now you have a race between uh, the, the positive feedback and the negative feedback. You have very crucial dependence on the size and, and, and exact nature of the original initiating stimulus and your own individual genetically set set points for the knobs, if you will, the knob settings, uh, for inflammation, anti-inflammatory inflammation, the damage response. So you could imagine that you can get many, many outcomes uh, of these simulations, and in fact we do. So, and that's in fact how we create simulated clinical trials, which is one of the, the translational uh, uses of the kind of work that we do. And uh, that's something that I'd be happy to, to, to discuss uh, more in a bit. But the, the, yeah. the whole concept that, that we're trying to put forward here is while, we, while we've spent a lot of time creating models that can be of interest to people who are theoreticians, the real goal of our work and the one that we spent a lot of time on is to say, okay, we, we've, we create models in such a way so that they will be as immediately useful in a clinically translational fashion as possible. Okay. We're trying to, trying to use this, this, this terminology of uh, translational systems biology, which, which to, to differ from the, the, more, the more, if you will, mainstream, if such a word can be used, systems biology that people can the people who know the field can think of these days, where there might be incredibly detailed studies of simpler organisms or, uh, or extensive um, uh, genomic, proteomic, et cetera, analysis of certain processes. We're, we're focused on the mediators that are, that are known to operate, and we're focused on creating the models in such a way so that the outcome of the models is as, is as useful either for a clinical or preclinical setting as possible. So I imagine if you have a model that's useful clinically, that model is helping you to determine elements or markers of certain stages of inflammation or, or mediation. Um, because as you said, we, we tend to, we take a, a lab test and we, we're looking at a snapshot at a single point in time, but that single point in time is giving us a different snapshot depending on all of those variables that you just described. That's, that's right. But if we had a physiological marker or two that indicated that, okay, regardless of time point, regardless of end time, you know, this is happening. So now we give medication X to mediate this process that we can see is happening. Is that the sort of thing when you, well, when you say clinically so, translatable? So the, I, you have to be very careful in the sense that, uh, so we, we, we published a paper a couple of years ago where we introduced this simulated clinical trial methodology and even talked about how you might get some early, quote, biomarkers of the way that the response was evolving. Um, the problem is that the, the, the markers themselves are useless without the model because they might be higher than or lower than uh, a healthy point at any one time or another. So, mm -hmm. so, for example, the disease versus the sickness or the disease plus effective drug versus disease plus placebo. Um, in, the, in those settings, a particular biomarker relative to each other 
may be higher, lower, et cetera. They may be flip-flopping over time. Mm -hmm. And so to say that, oh, okay, with the modeling, we then can reduce it down to one or two or 20 things that you can, that you can measure all the time and, and know just from the measurements where you are, no. But, but if you measure those things and you have a framework to hang them on, which is what the model is, mm -hmm. I mean, the, the, imagine you have, you, have, you have a cloth and you're trying to make a dress or a suit. You either have to have a human body to hang it on or one of those nice mannequins to hang it on. Otherwise, it's a cloth, and your best guess at how to make a suit. Uh, the concept of a framework is to take uh, the data and, and put them on a path where it makes sense. And now, mm -hmm. look at that. I have a form, something I can see that tells me, yeah, I understand what this shape is. I can, if, if you continue that analogy, you take that cloth, you hang it on that, on that mannequin, you start to figure out, okay, that looks like a suit, you can pretty much know where the sleeve is going to be. Mm -hmm. If you just looked at the, at the cloth lying there, the sleeve could be anywhere. And it's widely open to interpretation. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and so the, 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 the thing that differentiates what we do from the, the, the either statistical models, which try to get a lot of data as a trade-off for not having really any knowledge about the process, is that we don't need as much data because we like to put in the knowledge a priori. Now, get, putting the knowledge in is, di is difficult and time-consuming and a process that takes a lot of time to do. Mm -hmm. But once you've achieved that, and we, we have to some degree, um, you, you can be in the situation where uh, getting some simple, easily uh, obtained measurements, uh, hanging them on the framework of our model, importantly because our model contains this idea of damage or dysfunction and how it iterates with inflammation, we can use that damage variable as, first of all, as a, an index of how well you're doing health-wise. And B, it's not just an, an independent variable there, it's connected to the rest of the model. That's something that nobody else has done before. I see. Um, there is now sufficient evidence, even at the molecular level, that says that, that these kinds of responses are tied in through this da damage or danger signals. So that the responses to pathogens and the responses to your own uh, damaged tissues are, are even occurring via the same receptors, via the same cell types, etc. So our models have had that idea in them for five, six years. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, the literature is in a way catching up to that now in mm -hmm. terms of showing that in, in, in fact it happens, uh, that the danger response is involved in wound healing or that inflammatory uh, derangements are important in wound healing, etc. Our models would predict all of that. I see. So tell me, uh, tell me what you envision as a good practical application of your work to, you know, a real-life um, sepsis situation. Right. So, so we have, uh, because we felt that we had to put our, our uh, money or our, our effort where our mouth is, uh, several years ago, uh, we helped start a company here in Pittsburgh, uh, Immunetrics Incorporated. Uh, so by way of disclosure, I'm one of the co-founders of that. Uh, the, the concept behind that was that we could use these mathematical models uh, to generate uh, simulated clinical trials and that we could then mine the data that comes out of that in order to be able to predict whether uh, a particular drug could or could not uh, work well. Uh, it, to, to predict, for example, which patients should be included or excluded from receiving the drug, uh, even to the point of saying what ages should they be, and, and if so, uh, what hospitals should the trial be done in, because you can you can micro-dissect this down to that, to that level in these simulations. And we're now incorporating additional comorbidities. Uh, but things like the genetics of an individual have been wired into these simulations for a long time. Um, so, so that's a very important translational application. Each, each clinical trial might cost 50 to $100 million. If you can rule out at a very early stage of the game whether you should or should not proceed with a particular compound, uh, or e even if it was later enough in the game, even if it's after phase one, you can still make quite an impact with, with a model. You might make impact even after phase two, and as we're finding uh, uh, that the company has been interacting with some pharmaceutical companies, um, you can even intervene after phase three when there's a desire to, to go to phase four and, and, and expand the indication or change it uh, or, or whatever. Uh, so that's one, one application. Another application is to use these models for rational drug design. So you could do the same kinds of uh, ideas with, with, with the simulated trials, except ahead of, much ahead of that, you could be running simulations about what should the characteristics of the drug be in order to have an, 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 an impact at the, at the end. So that's a very important application. Another one that, that, that's, again, all along the same path is reduction of animal usage because animals mm -hmm. are used in uh, research uh, and in the preclinical phases of drug development. 
well, if you know relatively little about how a drug works and you're doing these, these experiments in animals, first of all, the, the experiments themselves are, uh, the, the animal models are not as, uh, as true representatives of the human diseases one would like often. Uh, and moreover, you don't have any particularly rational idea about how to use this drug, so you have to try a lot of different combinations. So a lot of animals get, get uh, experimented on in that process. Well, with these kind of simulations, you can greatly reduce the number of animals because you can p pinpoint uh, the drug of interest and roughly the timing of interest, et cetera, uh, uh, because our, we've calibrated some of our models to specific aspects of inflammation that occur in, say, mice versus rats uh, mm -hmm. versus larger animals, et cetera. And we have a model in humans. So you can make inferences at every stage of the way as to what will happen in, in people. How do the regulatory bodies feel about doing these sort of virtual trials? Are they as accepting of the data as they have been of good old-fashioned trials? Right. So that's actually a, that's a very much at the cutting edge. The FDA has put out a document that is abbreviated as the critical path document. It's got a very long name that actually says that companies should be exploring and making use of these computer models as a way of streamlining the, the drug development process, number one, and number two, reducing the number of failed trials. So, so in fact, the FDA has called for this to be done. The reality of it is that, certainly for an inflammation field, um, but for in, in most other fields, no one has come to the table with the kind, this kind of technology. So um, we have not yet sat down with the FDA for this, but I could envision a situation down the road where it'll almost become mandatory to do this kind of simulation before you even go into your, your animal work. Mm -hmm. Because... Um, you, You're building you, an inefficiency very early on, right? Upstream. Exactly, and, uh, and 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 in fact, you could argue on on, on ethical reasons even that mm -hmm. that a drug shouldn't even make it to to phase one if it hasn't been passed through the, these kind of simulations to to verify that it even ever has a chance of working in people. I maybe I'm just reflecting um, my my own luddite tendencies, or maybe I'm having difficulty with the paradigm shift of this notion. But you know, I worry about um, a, a lot of downstream, um, you know, results that are now being applied to a human population that may be based on some error or some variable that you know should or should not have been included way much earlier upstream in the process. Um, are there checks and balances for things like that? Yeah, so, so the strategy that, that we've outlined within this concept of the rational drug design, but you can think of it as rational therapy development or, or whatever, would be if you have a reasonable uh, model of the disease where you've run simulated trials that look like trials that have been published, so we've done that and are doing that. And first of all, you can run many more simulated cases than you can real cases. So we can run, say, to 10 to the 7th simulations. You know, you can run more simulation than there are people on Earth if you want. So your results um, have more statistical significance. In some sense, right? Significance. Right. Yeah. So, so that's the first part. But the second part is you say, okay, if, if my drug is to be efficacious there and you test it out, then you can make pre very specific predictions about what that drug should do, say, in mice. Mm-hmm. It's not just that you're trying it in mice and going, well, it looks favorable, so let's move it to the next stage. You say, no, if it was to have worked in humans the way I say it should, then it should do very precise, quantitatively predicted things in mice. Then you actually test it in mice, and you determine just how close you are. Um, that gives you some confidence right from the beginning as to whether you're in the right ballpark or not. So let's assume that you get close, but not exactly the same. Then you might say, well, okay, is that close? Is that good? What if we proceeded? Would it be harmful to people later? Well, you can then take those properties that you actually find that are close to, but not the same, say, as the ones that you actually predicted, and you wire them back into the original simulation. You say, if the drug had these other slightly different properties, would it still have a chance of doing something favorable in people? And let's just say it still says it does. You say, okay, great. Well, what would you predict then that would happen in rats or in some other experimental species that's larger on the chain as you, as you move towards humans? And you can keep doing this iterative step. And with each step, you can gain tremendous amount of confidence in the um, benefit or the, or the potential benefit of this drug. And at the final stage of it, you can say, okay, well, if I had 20 patients that have very specific characteristics and this drug has now been has passed every other step of the way, Okay, which up until now it does, but only based on the FDA guidelines, which don't involve this level of precision. Um, you say, okay, if I had, say, 20 patients, and, it, and this, was their, this was their characteristics that they have, well, my drug should do this quantitative effect, and you predict that, and you get very close to that, then I think you have the 
the most possible rational basis to move forward to a full, you know, in a full phase two, let's say, or phase phase three trial. Mm-hmm. Um, often, where a lot of the failures of, the, of these drugs have occurred is that they everything has been managed reasonably well, and they make it through the animal studies. They, they make it through the, the phase one. They even make it past phase two, and then they die at phase three. Mm-hmm. I mean, our simulations could be done t- to tailor it for a phase two or a phase three trial, and so you could have an idea that you may find that it would say, yeah, you know, our simulations would say that it'll do great through phase two and die as soon as you go to the kind of expected population that you're going to find in phase three. Mm-hmm. And so either you have to find some way to change the phase three, or you have to know that right from the beginning. And so have you not then done a tremendous amount of benefit? I mean, imagine that you have got, uh, you have managed to, um, to take out as much of the risk as possible mm-hmm. all the way up the chain. I mean, people don't always realize, but uh, any device that you use right now that has an, the potential to impact human life, say an airplane or a car or a building, has been simulated before you ever made a prototype and certainly before you ever put people in it. But medicine is done pretty much by, by the scientific method and then application onto people. Uh, there are a few places where simulation does occur. Um, for example, radiation treatment planning for cancer, that's done in simulation uh, because you're, again, working with a large amount of energy that you're delivering to a, to a tissue. And, and so they're doing patient-specific simulation, and they run through it to be sure their, their equipment is working right. Only then do they actually do a patient. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a few other settings as well where you can do that. Mm-hmm. But why wouldn't it make sense that something like that should be the preferred way of doing it in, in, in the medical setting? If it, does, it was available, yeah, it does make sense. Actually, the way when you put it that way, it's you know, we're we're simulating rather than simulating the building before we put the people in it. We're simulating the medicine before we put it in the people. That's right. Um, that's that's the whole point. Yeah, and 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 of course, as these models get used more, uh, the whole the whole methodology we've outlined is one that is designed to break the models. Mm-hmm. So we've designed a method, an iterative methodology of researching the original, uh, researching uh, the the data to f- to f- uh, in the literature to find out what are the basic mechanisms, converting that into uh, models or uh, of some sort or another, collecting data to calibrate the models so that they are quantitatively uh, faithful to the process, but then making uh, uh, predictions using the models in order to find out just are the models just good at being fit to the data, or are they good at actually predicting something? And typically that means predicting something on which the models were not trained. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so statistics are used in the same way, except that they're typically picked, uh, they're v- validated by saying, okay, here's my large data set. I take a part of it, I leave aside, I use that for calibration of my model. I take the other part, and I say, could that first part have been used to give me some prediction of what happened in my second part. I'm saying imagine that you have a completely different data set of completely different but related disease process and could you have used the first one to make a prediction for the Mm -hmm. second one. That's effectively the holy grail. That's what everybody wants is to take the smallest amount of existing data and make a prediction for what will happen next in another slightly different setting. Mm -hmm. That's effectively what what one could call a phase four application of of a drug is phase three got you to some approval. Phase four is, well, that plus a bit more. And that's statistical models really are not theoretically even capable of doing that, and yet they're being used in that fashion all the time. So it's not surprising then that we find ourselves with settings where drugs all of a sudden have these massive adverse effects. That's because they were they're taken typically just about just a bit outside their original context. The kinds of simulations we're talking about allow you to bridge that gap. I see. I'm curious to know how sort of open source the that raw data sets are because I it must take an enormous amount of effort as you said so yourself to collect all of that data and you're talking about multiple data points you know for each data instance you know there's many many elements you know that make up that entire set and I know that um, in public health there's sharing of data sets occasionally so that different researchers can do sort of what you were describing, glean the answers to different questions based off the same data set. So uh, what's the story with your industry? Right. So, so actually that question does come up at times. All, all of our models that have been published, uh, including the small ones and the ones that are larger that have data associated with them, are published in the literature. The mm-hmm. models are there in the papers for people to see. We also have them as downloads from our website. 
Um, and so people can get to them anytime. Uh, in my group, uh, in the center, we've established a, uh, a database that has these data. Uh, they are theoretically there to be distributed. Of course, we have to check who it is that's asking. Mm -hmm. And especially as we move into having human data, there's substantially increased complications with uh, HIPAA and other and other regulatory aspects. It has to be de-identified. Exactly. That, yeah. Exactly. And and certainly, but certainly, our our uh, our animal data are are uh, open for people to interact. Now, the Immunetrics has augmented the models and created some proprietary uh, versions of them. But uh, people can obviously interact with with them directly in whatever fashion sort of sort of makes sense for them. Okay. Now, tell you mentioned your center. Tell our listeners the name of the center. Right. So it's the Center for uh, Inflammation and Regenerative Modeling. And let's hone in on that regenerative part a bit, since okay. we're here to talk about regenerative medicine. Um, what's the application of what you're doing to helping healing? So we've recently taken um, this idea, if you recall how I described how we visualize the inflammatory process, where, again, it's not inflammation in isolation, but it's inflammation as a driving force towards healing, okay? Um, and we've looked at a couple of different uh, settings uh, where, where healing is, is deranged. Uh, one, in, one interesting one, and, and one which the University of Pittsburgh and UPMC certainly interact with a lot, is uh, diabetic foot ulcers. So, so people that have diabetes uh, have circulatory problems and also sensory uh, deficiencies, and so they, they often get wounds um, on the, uh, at, the bottoms, at, the, at the bottom of their feet that, uh, that uh, remain unhealed or are, cro excuse me, are chronically made worse. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, our uh, limb preservation wound healing clinic here, uh, which is run by uh, David Steed, is uh, the largest uh, clinic in the country dealing with these, uh, with these uh, sort of uh, ulcers. Now, what we did is we, we used our, our basic, that basic concept of inflammation to wound healing and focused more on the healing part. So we were able to, to calibrate our models to the kind of data that one gets in the, in, in the literature about the way skin healing occurs where there is an inflammatory phase, which we can reproduce, uh, leading to a healing phase. And we, can, we tested some hypotheses about uh, derangements that, are, that have been written in the literature to, to, to characterize uh, or to be associated with diabetic foot ulcers. And literally plugging in a single change, one of, of, of a couple of different uh, changes that have been, that have been uh, hypothesized to, 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 to accompany diabetic foot ulcer healing, uh, we were able to get simulations of delayed healing and increased inflammation. We then simulated some therapies that are known to be effective, or at least partially effective, and were able to show how in our simulations they would in fact be effective, including even simulating uh, the surgical debridement of, of a wound to some degree. Uh, just to interrupt, is that a test of your model? The validation is always a test. Okay. I mean, the, the, you know, each time, you, you, I think theoretically you can never stop testing the model. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and again, because a model will never be the exact one-to-one -one replication of reality, you can mm -hmm. imagine, if you just think about it philosophically, it's just not possible. Um, the best you can do is just greatly increase the level of refinement of mm -hmm. prediction uh, before you break the model. The goal is to get to a point where the model is in pretty good shape to make useful predictions, and for our, in our point of view, useful means... Uh, in some translational clinical fashion. Okay. Uh, and so we, that is that, again, to, to restate that, which I said before, we're, that's our ultimate goal. That's what drives all of this work. So I think our, uh, at least the, the, the model in the setting of sepsis and trauma that I mentioned is in a pretty good state for that. This new model, I think, is also in a pretty good state where we can even make predictions about some novel uh, compounds or the properties of novel compounds. Um, so that's one application of that. We used the same basic backbone of the model, but calibrated a bit differently for a very interesting project with uh, Kitty Vertolini uh, here in our School of Health and Rehabilitation Science. And uh, they look at um, healing in a, in a context I'm sure you'll be familiar with, which is vocal folds. Uh, so vocal fold inflammation occurs with people that talk a lot, like me and I guess you, <laughs> and teachers. And uh, teachers, I think, are the, the major uh, the major. Uh, sufferers from this, but I, I think also people that work in loud environments, construction workers, etc. Um, so, you know, you've, 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 I'm sure everybody's experienced this, this kind of feeling of hoarseness and, and inflammation that doesn't really come from, a, from a, a cold or from something, but just from overuse. 
And Kitty's group has done uh, very tough-to-do work in using uh, actual human data that they get from human volunteers or patients where they can measure inflammatory mediators right there in the vocal folds. Um, and they find that the same mediators that one would find in a tissue trauma of any sort are being elaborated mm -hmm. there. Now, they've taken it further, and their concept of regenerative medicine is to say just as you might Im imagine uh, happens in other types of rehabilitation, maybe rest isn't the best thing to do. Maybe uh, the best thing to do is to have some sort of exercise for the vocal folds as a way of getting them to heal themselves. And in fact, our models predict that that should happen. Mm -hmm. So if you have uh, uh, this, if you can conceive of the original phonotrauma as being a big initiating event that sets in motion the pro and the anti-inflammatory events, well, you can play with smaller secondary traumas, which would be this exercise type of mm -hmm. mobilization. And they actually are, as long as they're below a certain threshold, predominantly driving the anti-inflammatory arm. That's how what our simulations show. Wow. And that can actually be leading to improved outcome, which is, in fact, what they find empirically. But, of course, they don't know on any one patient whether it will work or not. The concept is, could we calibrate our models to individual patients and say, for you, this vocal fold mobilization exercise is going to work. And, of course, you can say if you make somebody do a second very strong trauma, then, of course, it's worse than if you did nothing, the voice, the rest, or if you did this vocal fold uh, exercise. So you can, of course, extrapolate that out to a knee tendon, to a tendon, to a shoulder, to lots of other places, which is what we're thinking about at this point. This, this concept that, uh, and it's been shown, that if you... If you walk or, or, or jog at a certain sub-threshold stress, you're ben generally giving a beneficial effect in terms of, of healing, and yet you definitely are inflamed. Every time you run, you're mm -hmm. inflamed. Um, it, it happens. But, if, of course, if you go beyond where that is, now it's too much and you get hurt. Right. And that's that damage that goes much too high. So there's huge applications for this. There's not huge only in applications for this. Not only in rehabilitation from injury, but in for for high-powered athletes who are really interested in making strength gains without risking injury. And that's right. I've actually started to interact just recently with some people on campus who are very interested in that concept. Um, and, and that's why they're all running around with heart rate monitors right now, is they're trying to stay below a certain threshold, but they're not, that's not the same physiological system well, just to give an example. That's the one you're looking at. So. Right, just to give an example. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm an avid cyclist and runner, mm -hmm. and uh, so... so Lance Armstrong, at the end of every one of his uh, training rides, would, would get some blood and have a lactate threshold done. And, th and that's just uh, very crude, relatively speaking, although highly sophisticated relative to what a lot of other people do. Mm -hmm. What the concept we're thinking about is, imagine if you had that same blood sample, but instead got a whole lot of different analytes, plugged them into the kind of model that we are, and said, hey, how are you doing true health-wise in terms of that inflammation you had from this workout, the predicted effect on your, on your health state, even the predicted effect on, well, you know, just now and it's cold and flu season, the, what you just did to yourself, mm -hmm. I think that if you do it again tomorrow, you'll be sick in three days. Mm -hmm. and, it, and, that, and most elite athletes are actually often at the exact knife's edge of, of sickness. Uh, in yeah. the Tour de France, they get bronchitis all the time. Yeah. Um, and, and that is the, 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 the balancing act that, that elite athletes have to do is they have to train at a very high le level in order to stay at that, at that top level of their, of their sport but one extra push a little too hard makes them sick, causes them injury, knocks them out. Yeah. So the, 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 the concept that, that something like this underlies that type of prediction, I think, mm -hmm. is huge. Can we go back to diabetic wound healing for a moment? Because sure. I think I interrupted you before you could finish that story. Um, you said you simulated traditional treatments and found that they were, your simulations were behaving as... Roughly as expected. As expected. Right. But was there another step there to, to finding yet new ways to help those injuries heal? Right. So, so actually there's two things. First of all, we have some, some funding now to actually collect real tissues from diabetic foot ulcers in order to calibrate this model and make some quantitative predictions. But, uh, yeah, the, the idea was, well, okay, let's, uh, if we made some hypotheses based on the literature about these, some of these single mediators that are being deranged in diabetic foot ulcers, which is what's, what's out there. It's very sparse, but we, they're there. Um, we, we said, well, it's obvious. Let's 
try to see what would happen if you replaced or, or, or in some way modulated those particular mediators um, and made some, got, got some interesting uh, uh, suggestions about how those might actually uh, work. So you can, I mean, the model as it stands now could be used to test out a lot of different strategies. As, it, as the model gets more complex, that means that many more knobs that you can twiddle and that means many more ideas in terms of how you could uh, come up with novel strategies. And we are testing some novel anti-inflammatory compounds, et cetera, and using, we have one that, um, that we are looking at uh, with uh, um, Mitch Fink's uh, group. Mitch Fink is the chair of the Department of Critical Care Medicine here, um, where it has profound anti-inflammatory effects even in vivo, you know, in animal models, but people don't really know the mechanism of action by which it works. Well, we have this uh, strategy wherein you could actually inject this compound into animals along with the pro-inflammatory stimulus that it, it has been able to antagonize and then take the data from, from these animals and simply recalibrate the models that we already had. Mm -hmm. Since, of course, recalibration means adjustment of all these knobs and adjustment of the knobs means changing various set points in cells for certain processes automatically we get back an answer for the mechanism of action of this drug and yet we get it via very straightforward analysis that involves easily obtainable analytes and the model. Mm -hmm. So that's a strategy we've outlined even for looking at genetically deficient mice or mice that are aged versus ones that are younger or you can imagine the number of applications of this and again this is getting back to the idea of translational mm -hmm. systems biology. The models are set up to facilitate that. Uh, one would argue that the actual event that we're looking at is happening somewhere far away from the place that we sample, but the problem is it's very hard to get to that place. It's especially hard to get to that place without causing additional damage on the way to getting to that place mm -hmm. to get the, the sample. So you get into this philosophical idea of the Heisenberg uncertainty principle where you can't get into the measurement unless you disturb the situation. Mm -hmm. Well, knowing that, and knowing that, that actually even that little disturbance in certain settings can be all the difference between knocking this organism from one outcome to another, you, you, we thought from the beginning to have our models set up to be able to, to work with the least invasive samples possible. And we, we do some work with non-invasive sensors, uh, with Juan Carlos Puyana in the Department of Surgery, uh, and we do other work with minimally invasive sort of measurements, sort of blood, uh, blood samples, et cetera. In terms of mediating inflammation, um, I guess a real challenge has been how do you mediate inflammation in one spot in the body, one wound, for instance, without um, throwing out of whack other important vital elements of inflammation elsewhere. I mean, isn't that really the problem with COX inhibitors, for example? Well, I, actually, I, I, the, what you say is, is especially true you, uh, with w work that, uh, that we do with uh, uh, Tim Billier, who's, the, who's my chair, the chair of the Department of Surgery. Uh, they find that you can have, say, for example, a, a remote tissue injury, like a bone fracture, and you're going to have systemic manifestations throughout. So, mm -hmm. so first of all, that does definitely happen. And then if you stack on top of that some additional smaller insult, et cetera, you can continuously throw the system into worse and worse uh, situations. The interesting thing about that, though, is that you can actually have a pre-injury. We can con consider it pre-conditioning, and it'll actually make the second injury less hmm. injurious, which is a, a phenomenon people have known about for a long time and that now we can explain mathematically with our models. Um, so, so that... While it's true that, that you, have, you have to account for these different, um, different inflammatory stimuli at, at various locations, the point you raise about something like a COX inhibitor is not so much about that as it is about the fact that, again, organ damage or organ function are tied into inflammation. Mm -hmm. So if you come in and, 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 and with a supposedly laser-precise um, modulation of a particular pathway of inflammation, because it's linked to organ function, as we sh as we do in our in our models, you could see how changing inflammation might actually impact organ function mm -hmm. because they're webbed together. They're right. inter they're interacting. And the more I read, the more I see that everything right now is being <laughs> is being put down to inflammation, heart disease, Alzheimer's, diabetes, Can cancer. cancer. And we have we in fact have. Uh, put in some proposals on the area of, of, uh, of modeling in cancer as well. Wow. I mean, if you think about it, people, th there's been a lot of evidence now suggesting that uh, strong inflammatory stimuli lead to cancer formation. And that's a very interesting area, but it's actually not the one that I think is the most likely beneficiary of the kind of work we do. Um, 
it's it, because typically the the, the 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 typical cancer patient is somebody who already has cancer by the time that you find out about it. Mm-hmm. It's not somebody who is going to have it in fifty years or lives in an endemic area of uh, some sort of liver fluke or parasite or something mm-hmm. that will lead to this cancer formation. It does definitely happen, and it's a major health issue, certainly in various places. Uh, but but the the typical quandary that, that a physician might find himself is the patient comes in with this cancer, and now you have to come up with some way to deal with this. And there are obviously chemotherapeutic, other methods, surgery, and, uh, and, and attempts at modulating the immune system. Mm-hmm. The, the problem that the way we look at it is something like this. Why is cancer, why is cancer killing you? If you ask most people that, they, if they have to stop and think about it, why, why do you die from a cancer? Typically, you die from a cancer because either the cancer grows beyond a certain size and at that point is now impinging on the function of a particular organ, or it doesn't have to be too big, but it's in the wrong, in a very bad location. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you can imagine a brain tumor, or you can imagine something in your esophagus or in your lung. Again, you're not dying as you would from, say, Ebola virus mm-hmm. or anthrax, mm-hmm. something it's inherent. It's not a systemic failure. Yeah, it, well, it's, it's not something that's inherent to the, to the, ori- to the, to the pathogen it, or see. to the cancer. Right. You're dying because your body tissues are becoming damaged. Now, one thing that happens at that stage, by the time it's that bad, is that um, you're elaborating these exact same alarm danger signals that that I've been talking about, and guess what? You find a phenotype of, of, of inflammation. The problem is that cancers are also producing a ton of anti-inflammatory stimuli for a very long time ahead of that, and mm-hmm. they're evading your immune system. Mm-hmm. So what you have is a skewed situation, okay? And, and I think that the kind of modeling we do can have a lot of impact on that because you can, you can imagine a therapy that would be tremendously efficacious at killing your cancer, okay? And they've been tried. I mean, massive surgeries or an in, in infusion of strong pro-inflammatory stimuli. The, the often tragic outcome, however, is that the patient dies from mm-hmm. the therapy. And if you stop and think about it, it's all, if you think about the way these linkages are occurring, imagine that you have a, a tumor and it's producing a lot of a nice friendly anti-inflammatory stimulus, okay? If this was a big anti-inflammatory pill, you'd kind of want it most of the time. Mm -hmm. Now you take it away as part of a massive surgery which induces inflammation and all of a sudden takes away your your nice anti-inflammatory stimulus that you had um, and releases a massive amount of these danger signals into your system. Mm -hmm. You could see that you can become overwhelmed and and die. So the whole goal that we're trying to do is to say, can we do some modeling that'll tell you about what's the most optimal combination of of therapies and, and, and other modulation to avoid the damage that kills the patient, to, redu- to reduce the tumor burden in a way that is, c- that is commensurate with and compatible with survival at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the same thought process that goes into how to treat an infection. If you have a, 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 a big infection and you give a really great antibiotic, if it's too good at killing the bacteria, you get a, a massive explosion of bacterial-derived immunostimulants in your system, that can kill you by itself. Mm-hmm. So actually, the antibiotics typically that we use are probably sub-efficacious sub in terms of how they work, but that's okay because you're surviving yeah. the, entire, the entire therapy. So what we're trying to do is to say, look, you have to look at the entire system as a whole, mm-hmm. that you cannot just have the best possible drug that hits only one part, mm-hmm. be it the inflammation part or the pathogen part or the cancer part. You have to look at it as being tied into the whole system. In that case, you can start making some rational predictions and say, look, yeah, if I, if I, if I kill tumor to th- this extent or I kill pathogen to this extent, and on top of that, doing that it re- involves not only whatever drug, but maybe a, a surgical-type intervention, which itself is pro-inflammatory, et cetera. Mm-hmm. What is the total predicted burden on the patient, and could such a patient survive? That's right. kind of our ultimate goal. And, and again, that's what I mean, again, but when I say translational. We are not looking at, uh, well, can we predict every molecule flow in a cell? That's very important work, and you need to do that in order to understand... Um, to understand the processes and be able to think about them in a rational fashion as we do these models. But at the end of the day, all you've done is model a cell. Mm-hmm. We're talking about from the beginning of the initiating in- insult all the way to the health of the organism and how they interplay. Um, and that's, in the end, what, what a clinician wants to know. Right. At the end of the day, what will this therapy make my patient better or worse? Right. And that's kind of the goal. To sum up, I'm very curious to know about your own training because, you know, I hear a lot of philosophy and math and computer science and what have you, so... Well... What sort of renaissance man are you? (laughs) (laughs) 
Uh, well, I wasn't aware you needed training. <laughs> so uh, actually, the uh, yeah, my, uh, it's been a, a sort of interesting. I, I have uh, uh, my my undergrad work uh, was in uh, biochemistry and molecular biology, and 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 I also worked in as a as a research assistant in immunology labs, and I, I took a lot of immunology courses. I did my PhD in immunology mm-hmm. um, at, uh, at uh, Cornell University Medical College mm-hmm. uh, under uh, Carl Nathan, who has, ha, it really is a guy who thinks in, 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 in these kinds of systems ways, even though before such a concept really existed, and has written some really nice review articles and other articles along these lines. Um, and then... But then I spent a lot of time uh, in my postdoctoral work at the NIH looking at uh, sepsis and cancer and Alzheimer's disease and in various other settings, in fact. Um, I then went on to work uh, at Washington Hospital Center with a group of interventional cardiologists where we were looking at restenosis and cardiovascular disease. We were interacting with medical device companies, et cetera, so very kind of deadline-driven, company-driven type of interactions. Mm-hmm. All along before that, I had, I, I had a fair amount of math uh, in my in my uh, undergraduate work, I did a lot of computers. I I, I computerized my my father's uh, uh, he's a surgeon. I, I computerized his office back when I was in 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 high school and into college. So I, I was doing a lot of computer work and mm-hmm. database work from a pretty young age. Um, and and I I think that there's been various influences that uh, gravitated me towards systems thinking and and whole. Looking at the system as a whole, even though I did a lot of work that one could term reductionist, uh, looking at pathways, etc., it never was satisfi- It never was satisfying to me in the, in the way that uh, this other type of view uh, was. Now the NIH had frowned on that type of view for a long time. Mm-hmm. It was very difficult to get grants funded that looked at the system as a whole. And physiology, for example, is a discipline that had gone totally out of favor and went extinct, and yet now is coming back in the guise of uh, systems biology. Right. Yeah, and then we're hearing a lot about the, the roadmap, I guess, which That's right. includes more bang for the buck. That's right. Built it, it, in, So, which it sounds like this approach gives you. Right, exactly. Yeah. Great. Thank you for joining us today. Okay. Thanks. Thank you very much. For more information about Dr. Vodovots and his work, see the links on our site at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. And don't forget to join us for our next podcast on the latest from the field of regenerative medicine, coming to you two weeks from now. If you have ideas for future podcasts, or you'd just like to give us some feedback, please send us an email at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. We can't reply to individual emails, but we do welcome your suggestions. And let me remind you that we are not physicians, nor can we provide diagnoses or medical advice. We hope you'll stay subscribed to the RSS feed of this podcast, sponsored by the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine at www.regenerativemedicinetoday.com. Please join us again in a few weeks.